Chapter 13 of The Radio Beasts This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Daryl Hansen The Radio Beasts by Ralph Milne Farley Chapter 13 Toron continues his story. But still the young prince did not reply. Miles Cabot glanced around the little group and saw that they all were grinning broadly. They had heard the story before. Cabot turned back to Toron again and urged, Go on. You have just said that, as you dashed through the row of ghostly figures, someone lassoed you around the neck. What happened then? What happened then? replied the prince tantalizingly. The next thing that I knew, the red light of morning was flooding the eastern sky. I was lying naked on the ground in a garden, while just above me stretched a clothesline with a row of cupian togas fluttering in the breeze. These were the ghostly row of sentinels of the night before and the rope which had cut off my wind so summarily had not been a lasso at all, but merely the clothesline itself. Miles looked very uncomfortable and sheepish, as a general laugh went up at his expense. Then he declared, Toron, you are a first-class storyteller, and you certainly had me fooled. Did it really happen? Honestly, the boy replied. And Poblath added, It couldn't have been better if he had made it up. Then Toron went on with the narrative of his adventures. The clothesline was builder sent in my then-naked condition. Hastily grabbing one of the togas from off the rope, I donned it and hurried out of the garden, just as the morning life began to stir in the little village. Before folks had fully awakened for the day's round of pleasures and work, I had gained the fields and the woods beyond, and there I slept throughout the day. Just before nightfall, I found some red clay with which to dye my telltale yellow hair, and then set out once more to grope my weary way northward through the jet-black night. Thus I kept on for several days of sleep and nights of travel until one night a curcool rounded a turn too quickly for me and deluged me with its light before I had time to scuttle into the woods. Scuttle I did, however, and soon several flash lamps appeared among the trees in pursuit. The lights of my enemies showed me their whereabouts and thus enabled me to dodge them. But on the other hand, I could not see to find my way, whereas they could with the result that finally they surrounded me. There were four of them, four Formians. I was unarmed. Foolhardiness is not courage, as Poblath would say. So I surrendered. Luckily, they did not recognize me. Why should they, Cabot remarked, without your yellow curls and your royal robes? Anyhow, the prince continued, they didn't. I asked them what was the idea of arresting a poor farmer in the middle of the night. 
and they replied that it was this middle-of-the-night part of it that made my actions suspicious. Where was I going, and what was I doing? I cooked up some sort of a yarn about being out of a job and out of tickets, and they appeared to believe me. However, they said that the orders of Queen Formis were to make a census of all male Cupians, for the purpose of either impressing them into service or killing them, as soon as the army of King Yuri should come along on its triumphal march northward. Of course, I did not want to be listed and quartered on any of these villages, where my identity would probably be recognized. So with mock eagerness, I asserted my loyalty to my brother, naturally not referring to him as such, and inquired as to whether there were any openings for mechanics in the air service. Thanking my luck the while that we Cupians do not have registration numbers painted on our backs like the Formians. As a result of my apparent eagerness to serve in the army, which seemed perfectly plausible in view of my being out of a job, only a few perfunctory questions were asked as to my identity, and I was taken along to an encampment of the ants. I had picked the air service, because that would undoubtedly be manned almost entirely by Formians, who would not be so likely to recognize me as would my own countrymen. Unless I happened to run across some of my former instructors at the University of Muni, I had to take a chance on that. To make a long story short, the motley army of the Yellow and Black Allies came along a few days later, bound northward, and I was assigned to one of the Kirkuls which carried repair parts and machine tools for the airplanes. We then proceeded north without event until the entire army went into action south of Lake Luno. And just in time for this battle, there arrived a large force of flyers gathered from all over the two kingdoms for the final drive that was to end the war. According to word brought back to the airbase where I was stationed, the army of my baby cousin had only one plane and one anti-aircraft gun but these accounted for quite a number of ant flyers, and soon we were busily at work making repairs. Just a moment, Miles Cabot interrupted. Didn't it give you a guilty feeling to be repairing the airships that were to fly against your own people? Not at all, Prince Toron replied with a smile, for most of my efforts were directed toward filing stay wires almost to the breaking point drilling small holes in fuel tanks and plugging them with loose wooden pegs, adding grit to the lubricating oil, and performing other similar acts of sabotage. I really believe that I brought down fully as many Formian planes as did the opposing army. But in spite of my loyal efforts and those of the brave Cupians fighting under Ha and Tedden and Poblath, the black hordes were too numerous and too well equipped, and so finally triumphed. Word came back to us that the Q forces had been driven beyond Lake Luno, and that Luno Castle was under siege. Airplanes no longer returned for repairs, and most of our mechanics, ants they were, drifted forward to get a view of the fighting, 
leaving me all alone. Now was my chance to act. Nearby stood one ship which had been brought in for some minor adjustments, and on which I had secretly grounded the ignition, thus putting the machine out of commission. It was a simple matter to open the short circuit, and soon I was humming up into the air. Straight up I rose until I could get a pterodactyl's eye view of the lake and the surrounding hills. Several stads to the north was the slowly retreating line of Hababu and Buteden, followed by an opposing line of the forces of Uri, while other ant troops surrounded the heights overlooking the little lake. Over the contending armies flew the navies of Formis, dropping bombs, but their marksmanship was not proving very destructive, for they were flying high to avoid the eddies which rose from the gorges of the mountainous country to the northward. Even as I gazed, a party of flyers detached themselves from the advance and returned toward Luno Castle. So I settled slowly down to join them. Of course, they suspected nothing until I got within a few peristads of them and started dropping bombs. Two planes fell, and you should have seen the rest scatter. But just as I was exulting over my momentary victory, my attention was attracted to the island of the castle. Fighting was in progress on the heights and on the beaches. Cupians were leaping from the cliffs into the water and swimming toward the northern shore of the lake. Many Formians were rowing across from the mainland to the southern shore of the island, where they disembarked and got into the fray, and very soon after that every one of my countrymen had been driven into the water. They all seemed to be good swimmers, but on the northern mainland cliffs awaited an eager throng of armed ant-men. Without a moment's hesitation, I turned the nose of my plane straight down and dropped almost to the level of the lake. Then, quickly riding her, I skimmed along the cliffs and cleared them of the black enemy with a few well-placed bombs, just in time for the brave survivors of the castle to land and make their way through the hostile cordon. Yes, Poblath confirmed. If it hadn't been for Toron we never should have succeeded in rejoining the army. We got through the next lines in a storm which followed soon after. The young prince continued his story. But this maneuver placed me below the enemy flyers, whom I had just dispersed. Back they came and swooped down on me as I rose to meet them. My plan was to fly straight up through them, for the reason that a target coming head-on, at a slight angle, is the hardest to hit from an airship. But they got me with a bomb before I could make it, and my plane fluttered down into the water like a falling leaf, completely out of control. It took me some paraparths to disentangle myself from the floating wreckage, and by the time that I had done so, the storm, of which Poblath speaks, had broken. It was not much of a storm, as Peruvian storms go, but in the semi-darkness and rough waves I managed to swim undetected to the island, where I concealed myself in one of the shore caves 
until nightfall, when I ascended to the castle. There I found matters much as I imagine you found them, Miles, a day or two later, except that the darling baby king, whom I had never seen alive, was lying dead, kicked unceremoniously into a corner, with the jeweled dagger of my brother stuck through its tiny chest. So I prepared the funeral beer, as you found it, and left the note to let you know that Cupia still had a king. That is all. But how did you get through the enemy lines to join our army? asked Cabot. That would take too long to tell, replied Toron, for we are anxious to hear your adventures. I had a most difficult time hiding in the hills and escaping from one danger only to fall into another. But luck was with me, and I finally got through after several sanks of wandering. Now, tell us your story. So Cabot told of how he had been left for dead at the blockade on the outskirts of Kuwana, the evening of the assassination, how he had journeyed north with insufficient arms and no headset, how he had been captured and then had escaped in the relay station, how he had fallen into the trap of the ant bear, how he had seized the Kirkul and reached Lake Luno, how he had been burned out of the woods and washed away by the lost river, how he had fought the beasts of the dark in the caves of Carr until the blue ape had rescued him, how the priest had nursed him back to health, and finally how he had made his way through the forces of Yuri to safety and freedom. When the comparing of notes had ceased, the newcomer outlined what he had learned of the plans of the army of Yuri. Would that we could gain control of the air, sighed Prince Toron. But alas, we have not one single plane. Every day the enemy scouts fly over us, mapping our positions. In fact, the only thing which holds them at all in check is the large number of whistling bees which infest this region, and an occasional shot from our two anti-aircraft guns. By this time the pink twilight had fallen over the face of the planet, and Cabot, tired but somewhat relieved, withdrew to the quarters prepared for him, and tumbled into the rough cot which he found there. The next thing he knew, it was morning. He was awakened by an orderly arriving at his tent to inform him that the commanding general desired his presence for a trip of inspection along the front. So with some difficulty he shaved, made himself presentable, and reported at headquarters, where Ha was awaiting him with a few of his more immediate personal staff. A rough soldier's meal of green milk in Alta was served, and then the party started on their reconnaissance. During the meal, as they walked along, Ha sketched to his old friend and associate the events which had occurred since Miles and Buteden, with their loyal troops, had left the Mang'ul at Kuwana on the evening of the assassination, to begin their long march northward. Ha had been instructed to hold the jail at all costs, as a rallying place for whatever loyalists might remain at the capital. Throughout the rest of that afternoon, and all through the following night, the forces in the Mang'ul gradually augmented. By morning, the jail was jammed with supporters of the baby king. 
They even overflowed into all the surrounding blocks. But with the daylight came the inevitable, namely a few effective bombs from Formian flyers, which forced Hababu and his men out into the open. Just as he and his immediate advisors were wondering what course to take, a messenger arrived from Kamel, Barsarkar of Katuth, stating that he was in control of the city and pledging his allegiance to Little Q. Instantly, Haw decided to take the road which runs southeastward from Kuwana until it skirts the Old Pale, which used to mark the boundary between Cupia and Formia. This road then curves northward again until it reaches the city of Katuth. So thither Haw set out and met with practically no resistance, as Yuri and his aunts were all engaged to the northward and were naturally expecting that Haw would head for Lake Luno. But the Antmen soon discovered the plans of the loyal Cupians, and therefore attacked Katuth in force shortly after the newcomers reached there. In Cupia there are but two principal roads running from the cities which border the Old Pale to the northern part of the Okarzi Mountains, at the foothills of which lies Lake Luno. One of these roads starts at Kuwana, and is the one over which Poblath and his jail Kirkuls Bhutedon and his foot troops, Prince Toron, the army of Uri, and lastly Miles Cabot himself, made their way. This is the direct road. The other runs north from Katuth and enters the Okarzi Range at a point northeast of Luno. And it was over this second road that Kamel and Ha retreated. It was well that they did, for they gathered additional supporters from every town through which they passed, and they kept the enemy from making a hurried advance along this road, and thus perhaps reaching the mountains, and possibly even Luno Castle, ahead of the main Cupian army. As it was, Haw and Kamel held the road, beat a masterly retreat, and joined the main army as it was entrenching itself just after the battle of Lake Luno. So much for Haw's account which I have greatly boiled down, as its details would have but little bearing on the main events which I am endeavoring to cover. Now that Miles had heard this latest narrative, he was able to piece together a very complete history of the war to date, compiled from the events in Kuwana before all the parties separated at the Mangul, and from his own adventures and the stories told by the priests of Kar, by Prince Toran and Hababu. During the reconnaissance, which now was in progress, Cabot's attention was chiefly devoted to recalling to memory and checking up these various accounts. Save for the cheers of the loyal troops, the trip along the front was uneventful until there was heard in the southern skies the familiar purr of a nearing motor. An enemy plane on scout duty. Instantly, Haw and Miles and their party got under cover. On came the plane, but presently another sound was borne to the antenna of the watchers, namely a shrill whistling from the woods on their right. Now we'll see some fun, Ha softly radiated, for here comes a whistling bee to do battle with the plane controlled by the ant-men. And sure enough, even as he spoke, a huge orange and black insect winged its way into the silver sky, 
The fight took place almost directly overhead and was a repetition of the two battles in which Cabot himself had taken part near Sultona, while still a guest of the Antmen at Watusa, during the early part of his stay on the planet. Both parties appeared to be adepts in the art of aerial warfare, but of course the bee had only one sting and legs with which to defend himself, whereas the plane had its fighting tail, its grapple hooks, and at least one rifle. Given a fair deal, with only side slips, spirals, loop-the-loops, and tail jabs, the bee would have had the advantage. But what chance had he against explosive bullets? And so, in due course of time, the bee was shot down and fell screaming to the ground, while the plane, evidently injured to some extent itself, retired again to the southward. The bee fell quite close to where the observers were stationed, and impelled by curiosity to see how badly it was damaged, for every whistling bee remaining alive meant just one more obstacle to the air fleet of the enemy. Ha and Cabot and their suits drew near to the disabled creature, keeping their revolvers ready, however, lest it should attack them. Cabot's radio headset had been working badly that morning, and now, apparently, it began playing tricks upon him, for as he walked along, he thought he heard a very faint voice calling, Cabot! Cabot! Oh, Miles Cabot! But as his radio was non-directional, he could not tell whence seemed to come the voice. He stopped and began to adjust the controls. Clearer and yet more clear sounded the voice until, at the shortest wavelength of which his set was capable, entirely outside the range of Cupian conversation, the sound became no longer a vague suggestion, but rather an unmistakable voice, speaking the universal language of Poros. Cabot! Cabot! Oh, Miles Cabot! End of chapter 13